All right, well, we get to study God's word this morning, and we are in a series called Lead the Way, which is a book study through the book of Nehemiah. And I love this book. I'm so excited to get to go through this with you together. If you haven't already, I want to make you aware of a study journal that we put together. It's very simple. There are, there are no extra questions or anything in here. What we did is we licensed the text of the Bible in the version that we used. So we paid a little fee to be able to do that and put that in there. And then we put columns for notes. And the idea here is that if you want to take notes where you have a little more room than in your Bible, if you like to draw on your Bible, you can write in here, you can circle words, you can make connections and do all kinds of stuff. That's how I do my personal Bible study. And so we wanted to make this available to you if you want. They cost us a little bit to make. I think it's about $9. So if you want to donate, you know, $9, $10, $20, $50, 100 whatever you, whatever you feel is appropriate, you know, to cover... Whoever's next to you that may not be donating, whatever. Uh, But if you can't afford it, please just take one. We want you to have it. We want you to use it. We want this to help you grow in your relationship with God. So I'm going to take a moment here to pray because I know that this week has been insane for a lot of people. Very busy, um, wrapping up with some things, getting ready for some things. There's just a lot going on. There's a lot that weighs heavy on our heart right now. And maybe even stemming from last week, as we talked about problems that are affecting other people that you are aware of, that you are being deeply impacted by. There are just some things that we need to lay before God and say, Lord, would you help us to remove the distractions and focus on your word and your Holy Spirit and what you want to teach us this morning. So would you bow your heads in prayer with me? Heavenly Father, this is your word that we're going to be reading and learning about this morning. And we pray that you would speak through it to us, that you would teach us, Lord. Help us to push pause on all of the distractions and worries and anxieties and fears and all of the pressures that are before us and just to focus on you and what you want to teach us. Help us to to breathe Help us to relax, to rest in you today and to learn from you. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, have you ever had a time when there was something that you knew you needed to do, but you absolutely dreaded doing it? Can you think of a time in your life, I'll bet you can, when you knew there was something you needed to do, but you just dreaded doing that thing? One time in my early 20s, I had the opportunity, uh, an open door, to lead a, a pretty big ministry that I thought was just way beyond my capacity. But the opportunity was there, I was being invited to do it, and there was so much apprehension in me thinking, do I have the, the gifting to do this? I certainly don't have the experience to do this. Am I smart enough? Am I going to make a big mistake along the way? And so this was a good thing that I believed God wanted me to do, but I dreaded it. I had so much apprehension. In fact, I had nightmares about what would happen if I messed it up. Have you ever experienced something like that? Some years later, a number of different people contacted me to let me know that a certain individual who had an incredible amount of influence and authority and power and ego had been bringing people in systematically to meet with them and because of a a thing that they wanted to do that they needed these people for had basically been lying about me to all of these different people separately. 
And so these different people approached me and said, hey, are you aware that this stuff is being communicated about you over here? And I said, no, I I had no idea. None of that's even remotely true, which they knew, which is why they came to me. And so I brought all these different people together and they shared their stories. and, And we came up with a list of like 20 plus items of false accusations because this person wanted these people on their team and they thought the best way to do it was to get them against me. And so I had to wait outside this person's office after scheduling a meeting with them and wait there to go in and confront them for systematically lying about me to numerous people. And this is a person who had threatened me in the past. This is a person who I had seen take people down and ruin their careers in the past. And in those moments, waiting outside their office to go in and confront them for their sin, I dreaded it. I was, I was anxious, I was worried, I was concerned, I was fearful. What is going to happen? How is he going to respond to being confronted in this way? This is the kind of feeling that Nehemiah has in the moment that we're gonna look at today in Nehemiah chapter two. It is this dreaded moment where he finally gets an opportunity to talk to the king about the problem and he is terrified. When is the time? that you knew there was something you needed to do, but you absolutely dreaded it. Maybe it was confronting someone who sinned against you or spread rumors against you. Maybe it was making a really difficult medical decision for you or or a loved one that you really didn't want to have to make, but you had to do it. Maybe it was having to cut off support for someone who was using you and, and you learned that you were just enabling them and they had this dependency built up and now you have to have this conversation where you say enough is enough, you can't do this anymore but you dread that conversation. Or maybe it was telling the truth after you were caught in a lie and you dread that moment. Maybe it was being willing to sell something incredibly meaningful to you that had a lot of memories associated with it but you had to sell that thing to, to make ends meet for your family. Maybe it was taking a risk with a new job or a new business or a new ministry that all seemed so different to you. And so you knew you needed to do it, but you dreaded that moment. Do you have something like that in mind? Is there anything you can think of that, wow, this was a time I knew I needed to do this, but I absolutely dreaded doing it. I want to try something. If you can think of a moment like that, and if you can just communicate it in a few words, just tell the person next to you right now, what was that? All right, I want to tell you what I just saw. I just saw a handful of people who had theirs ready right away. Like, this is it. This is happening now. And I saw some other people that took a few moments to think about it and then went, oh, yeah, yeah, I've got something I can share. And then I saw some people who just didn't move. (laughs) And my interpretation of that is that that very moment is the moment you dread. When someone from the stage tells you, turn to the person next to you and say something, you're like, this is it. This is it right now. In fact, bonus points to any of you who turned to someone and went, this. That's it. We all have those things in our lives, those moments that we dread. 
And yet it's something that we need to do and we have to do. And what we want to do this morning is learn from Nehemiah. How did he handle this? How did he work through this? Because this is exactly what he was facing. Now let's get some recap on Nehemiah and, and who this guy was. So he was a Jew who was born in captivity. He had never seen Jerusalem. He had never been back there. He became a trusted member of the royal court for the king of Persia. That was a big deal. He was the, tr- the cupbearer. He was so trusted that he was the guy who got to taste test the king's food, not to make sure it was too hot, but to make sure it wasn't poisoned. And so the king had to trust him with his life because if anyone was going to be able to slip something through to the king, it was this guy. Nehemiah was an incredibly trusted dude. He was willing to die for the king. He was like part of the king's secret service. And Nehemiah's brother had recently gone off to Jerusalem, which is 800 miles away, gone off to Jerusalem with a group that's going back there to teach people how to follow God. So he comes back, and we saw this in the last chapter, last week, how Nehemiah's brother comes back and he gives this report about Jerusalem to Nehemiah, and it is not a good report. Jerusalem is a place Nehemiah had never visited. He didn't know what this place looked like. He had only heard stories. But when Nehemiah's brother comes back to him and tells him about it, he, he knows this is the place where his people are from. This is, this is God's city where God dwelled with his people, where he connected directly with his people. And Nehemiah's brother tells him that the walls are torn down and the gates are burned. Now it's hard for us to understand this today because we don't think of this as such a big deal. Uh, there is currently no wall around St. Louis County, the area, or St. Louis, the city. Now, sometimes there are dividing lines, of course. We all know about that. But there's no physical wall around our city. But back in this day and age, if you didn't have a wall around your city, you were vulnerable to attack at any time. It was a big deal. But even beyond that, think about this. Anytime anyone traveled in and out of Jerusalem at this point, They would have to walk past and over and around the piles of rubble and burnt wood that encircled this city. A constant reminder that this was a conquered city. And they were defenseless. And any time a raiding party wanted to come through and and come through again and conquer them again, they could do that because there were no walls to stop them. There was no good way they had to defend themselves. But even beyond that, so let's push that aside. For a city to not have walls, it was a disgrace. It was a constant reminder of the fact that they had been conquered and that they could be conquered at any time. But even beyond that, let's push that aside. This was God's city, the place where he dwelled with his people. And these were God's people. And everyone that knew anything about the Jewish people knew that they worshiped the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And they had heard the stories about how God at one time supposedly brought these people out of the land of Egypt and and split the Red Sea so they could walk across and help them to conquer all of these wicked groups of people so they could have the land that God was giving to them. And this is what his city looks like? This place with rubble and trash and burnt wood all over the place? This is what Jerusalem has become? Some God. So it was a disgraceful thing for these people. And it was a constant reminder of their unfaithfulness which was the reason that the walls were torn down in the first place. This was a big deal. 
God had led Zerubbabel back to rebuild the temple. God had led Ezra back to teach the people how to follow God. But the walls, what a disgrace. Every time you walk in and out of the city, a reminder of unfaithfulness, a reminder of being conquered and the fact that it could happen again at any time. So now picture Nehemiah hearing this for the first time. He's never seen Jerusalem. He's heard stories about how majestic it was. Now he finds out that it's surrounded by these piles of rubble and burnt wood. And he hears this and thinks, somebody ought to do something. Somebody really should solve this problem. So what does he do? He prays. We saw this last week. He prays to God, this incredible prayer, asking God to step in. And asking God to do something. In fact, every day for the last week, I've been posting a video on our Facebook page with a little bit of thought on a prayer principle from Nehemiah's prayer. Today we're on number seven. Tomorrow will be the last one. And today's prayer principle is absolutely perfect for what we're going to talk about today. Because when Nehemiah prayed and brought this problem to God, he didn't just bring a problem. He sought to be a part of the solution. He said, God, would you help me? God, would you give favor to me in this as I seek to help solve this problem for other people who are 800 miles away? Please make the king favorable to me. He's not just asking God to fix the problem. He's asking God to help him fix the problem. And I wonder how many times we see a problem and we cry out to God and we ask God to do something about it. And I don't know, but how often is God listening to us and thinking, I designed you to help fix this problem. You're praying to me for help with your marriage, with your future, with the debt that you're in, with getting through school, with finding a job, with finding a spouse, all of these different things. And there are things that you need to be doing that I made you to do, that I designed you to do, that I gifted you and gave you a brain and gave you wise counselors and people around you. And I want you to be a part of the solution. Don't allow your trusting in God to keep you from being a part of the solution. When Paul was dealing with his medical condition and he begged God to remove it from him, we talked about this last week, but this is, this is a little bit different. God did not say, my power works best without your weakness. What did he say? My power works best in your weakness. And so Paul's response to that was to say, I'm going to tell everybody about my weakness because when they see all of the stuff that I'm doing here, when people come to Paul and say, Paul, how do you travel like you do to these different cities and plant all of these churches and keep up with all these people and the letters you write, they're, they're, how does this happen? And Paul's like, I don't know, look at me, I got this condition. We don't know what it is, but I, I, my weakness is here. This has got to be from God. God working through his weakness. But Paul had a huge part in that solution. And God's power worked in his weakness. Makes me think of the problems that we face in our life. That we cry out to God and ask for relief and ask for help. And I just wonder how often he is thinking and waiting for us to realize, I designed you to be a part of this solution. God, would you help me get out of debt? Well, there are financial classes you can take. There's financial coaching, both of which are at this church, by the way. 
There are great principles on how to manage your money in my word. Why aren't you following the steps I've already laid out for you? God, would you help fix my marriage? Well, I've told you I want you to love your spouse. In fact, I want you to love them even if they don't love you and you haven't been doing that. So that's step one. God, would you help me to get through school and graduate? Well, I designed you with a brain. So yes, pray. There's, continue to pray and trust in me, but also work hard and study hard. There are things that you need to do to be a part of this solution. Don't use trusting in God as an excuse to not be a part of the solution. Nehemiah is willing to be a part of the solution to this problem that affects other people a long way away. But the question then is, how is he going to do it? This is not the type of thing that you just walk up to the most powerful and important man in the world and say, hey, you remember those people that are kind of conquered and over there and, you know, at any given time might be thinking about an uprising? Can I go help them? Like, I want to go build some defenses for them. Is that okay? Like, I'd like to sort of shore up their military and strengthen them and just make sure they've got some walls and stuff in case, you know, you ever want to conquer them again. That is not something you go tell the emperor of the known world. So how is Nehemiah going to do this? What if the king has information that Nehemiah doesn't have, right? What if the king has been hearing about rumors of some kind of a revolt or something like that? That was happening all the time in this day and age. So what if the king is very concerned about the Jewish people and Nehemiah comes in and says, hey, I want to go help the Jewish people. And the king goes, well, I guess you're a part of the problem. He could lose his job, probably lose a little bit more than that. This is a dangerous thing. This is a big risk for him. So that brings us to Nehemiah chapter 2. Would you turn there in your Bibles? You can follow along at efree.org slash Bible if you want to, or in the YouVersion Bible app under events in First Free Church. And we're going to read through the whole chapter and just talk through this together. And if you've got a study journal, it'll be great to write down notes as we go. Nehemiah chapter 2 verse 1 says this, Early the following spring in the month of Nisan. Let's stop right there because this month is four months after the month when Nehemiah first heard the news. So four agonizing months of Nehemiah praying, concerned about this situation in Jerusalem, but not having an opportunity to bring it before the king. I think he prayed every day. I think it was on his mind constantly. Let's be careful not to think that he learned this news and he just walked right in and took care of it with a king. Four months is a long time when you have a really big problem you're concerned about and don't know how to handle it yet. And so he waited and he prayed and in the month of Nisan, during the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, I was serving the king his wine. So that's his job. I had never before appeared sad in his presence. So the king asked me, why are you looking so sad? You don't look sick to me. You must be deeply troubled. Then I was terrified. Let's talk about that for a minute. Why would Nehemiah be terrified? Well, here's, here's why. If you were coming into the king's presence, the expect, there's protocols for this. Like right now, we don't have a ton of this, a, a little bit. If you were to go over to uh, England and you were to spend some time with the queen over there, I've never done that, maybe you have, but there are protocols. There are things you're supposed to do, where you're supposed to stand, how you're supposed to turn, which side of your face you're supposed to show, or all that stuff. There's protocols, okay? 
And that's for the Queen of England. Now, this is the emperor of the known world at the time. There's protocols. And one of those protocols is you don't appear sad in the presence of the emperor, or you might throw off his groove. Okay, that's just, that's the rule. You do not throw off his groove. So, Nehemiah appearing sad in his presence, that's a big deal. He managed to hide this for four months. But now he's so sad, and the king notices it. And the king takes away his best excuse. You don't look sick to me, so what is it really? Like, don't give me any of your excuses. What's really bothering you? And so Nehemiah has to do something. He's terrified. He's about to open his mouth and respond, but he could lose his life here if the king doesn't like what he is about to say. Here's what he says. I replied, long live the king. Now that was a normal phrase to say to someone who was in control, but it is especially important if you're the cupbearer, you want that king to survive because if not, you're probably not gonna survive either. He says, how can I not be sad? For the city where my ancestors are buried is in ruins and the gates have been destroyed by fire. And here's what's so cool. Look at how the king responds. The king says, well, how can I help you? Isn't that amazing? And it tells me something very important. I think that so often those things that we dread so much and worry about, have so much anxiety over, when we finally are willing to just take that step and deal with them, we look back and go, huh, wish I'd done that a long time ago. That wasn't as hard as I thought. Isn't that always the way? We get so worked up about things and then we finally do it and go, oh, okay, that wasn't so bad. And here the king, who Nehemiah was so concerned about, terrified over, says, hey, how can I help you? What can I do for you? And then we have probably my favorite phrase in the entire book. This phrase changed my prayer life many years ago. Nehemiah writes, with a prayer to the God of heaven, I replied. So here's the thing. I do not think that the terrified Nehemiah, concerned about losing his life in front of the emperor with what he was about to say, when the king said, how can I help you, went, excuse me one moment, dropped to his knees, closed his eyes, folded his hands, and prayed. He prayed in his mind. He prayed with his heart. He prayed in the moment, right with what he was doing. And what's so cool about that to me is it unlocked for me a long time ago this idea that prayer was not simply a formality that I had to go through some kind of a ritual for or go to a certain place for, but the prayer was something I could do all the time because Jesus Christ has opened up that pathway to God for us so that we can talk to God any time we want. So often we look at prayer like we look at a phone call. If you need to call someone, which I know everybody texts now, so maybe I need to update this analogy, but if you need to call someone, you're gonna gonna dial their number and you're gonna give them a call and it's gonna ring. Hey, how you doing? okay. Nice, good talk with you. Here's everything I wanted to say to you. Okay, goodbye. And you hang up the phone call and it's over. And that is so often how we treat prayer. Okay, we dial God's number. Do you know what God's, if you don't know God's number, you need to know God's number, okay? Do you know God's number? It's Dear Heavenly Father. Okay, that's, some people have a little short code or something, but that's the gist of it. And then it rings and you you give him your request, you tell him what you want to know, and then there's a special way to hang up the phone, okay? This is how you hang up the phone. You say, in Jesus' name, amen. And then you end the call. And you go about your life without him. 
That is not at all how he intended for us to operate. That's why he says in 1 Thessalonians, pray without ceasing. Don't stop praying. This is supposed to be a continual thing. And here Nehemiah demonstrates it for us as he just right in the moment, as he's about to reply, prays to the God of heaven. What did he pray about? Well, I think he prayed about everything he just told us in the first chapter in a very short span of time. God, would you give me favor with the king? God, would you help me in this? Would you bless these plans? Nehemiah, keep in mind, has been praying now for four solid months about this big, big problem that he is really concerned about. And he does not know yet, because he's terrified, he does not know yet what God's response will be. Think about that. God could say, no. God could say, wait. He doesn't know that God's answer is going to be, yes, I'm going to move the heart of the king to give you favor. He doesn't know that, and so this is a test for him, a test of his faith to do something that he's dreading to do, but he knows he needs to do. He believes God has put this into his heart and given him these plans. He talks about that later. And so he takes that step of faith to do the thing that he dreaded. And as he's replying, he says another prayer to God. And then he says this, if it please the king, And if you are pleased with me, your servant, send me to Judah to rebuild the city where my ancestors are buried. The king with the queen sitting beside him asked, how long will you be gone? When will you return? Now that's really good news for Nehemiah, right? Because already there's an implication that you're going to be gone, so I'm going to allow you to go. And I want you back. I like having you around. This is good for Nehemiah. After I told him how long I would be gone, the king agreed to my request. And then Nehemiah shares his plan. He had thought about this ahead of time. He had prepared for this moment. He knew what he was going to need to make this work. I also said to the king, if it please the king, let me have letters addressed to the governors of the province west of the Euphrates River, instructing them to let me travel safely through their territories on my way to Judah. And please give me a letter addressed to Asaph, the manager of the king's forest, instructing him to give me timber. I will need it to make beams for the gates of the temple fortress, for the city walls, and for a house for myself. He was planning ahead, and the king granted these requests. Watch this. Because the gracious hand of God was on me. This is Nehemiah's memoir. He wrote this. He could have told us anything he wanted to. He could have said, because I was so trustworthy, the king granted my request. Or the king granted my request because of my persuasiveness and my rugged good looks. He could have told us anything he wanted to. In fact, that was kind of the norm for people in the ancient world when they were writing history. They would sort of embellish it a little bit, make themselves look better, turn a defeat into a victory, do all that kind of stuff. And yet Nehemiah says, no, 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 God gets the credit. See, Nehemiah is willing to be a part of the solution. He is willing to work at this, but he also understands that ultimately God gets the credit. James 1.17 says that whatever is good and perfect comes down to us from God the Father who created the lights in the heavens. That means that everything you have and everything you do is only possible because of the gracious hand of God. 
And you may think that you earned something, you may think that you deserve something, you may think that you purchased something, and all of that can actually be true, and still, you wouldn't have it if it weren't for the gracious hand of God. You see, Nehemiah had something to do. He was part of the solution, but he understands that God ultimately deserves all the credit, because even as Nehemiah is working in a part of this, it is still God making it all possible and making it happen. Everything we have is thanks to God. Think about your resources. Think about the things that you own, the money that you have. All of that is technically on loan from God. He allows us to use it during this lifetime, but we can't take it with us. And so he tells us in his word, he wants us to be generous with it because it's not really ours anyway. And he wants us to give a portion of it back to him, not because he needs it, but because it's an act of faith for us We need it. We need to grow by being willing to give back and trust in him and be generous to other people. It's all his anyway. It's all because of God, everything that we have. Nehemiah understood this. So then he writes, when I came to the governors of the province west of the Euphrates River, I delivered the king's letters to them. The king, I should add, had sent along army officers and horsemen to protect me. Now, that's pretty cool. He got this special bodyguard to go with him. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite, the official, heard of my arrival, they were very displeased that someone had come to help the people of Israel. Now, these are two guys that are worried that their positions of influence and power are going to go away because Nehemiah has shown up. So I arrived in Jerusalem. Three days later, I slipped out during the night, taking only a few others with me. I had not told anyone about the plans God had put in my heart for Jerusalem. We took no pack animals with us, except the donkey I was riding. Now, there's one thing in here that you you have to pay attention to. When he talks about the plans that he has for Jerusalem, who does he give the credit to? To God. He says, the plans God had put in my heart for Jerusalem. The credit for this whole thing, he says, is God. It's not me. After dark, I went out through the valley gate, past the jackal's well, and over to the dung gate, which is an awesome name for a gate. I think we should name something after the dung gate around here. To inspect the broken walls and burned gates. Then I went to the fountain gate and the king's pool, but my donkey couldn't get through the rubble. That's how much junk was lying around, how disgraced this place was. His own donkey couldn't get through the rubble. So though it was still very dark, I went up the Kidron Valley instead, inspecting the wall before I turned back and entered again at the valley gate. Now here's what Jerusalem looked like at the time. Much smaller, much, much smaller than it is today. And of course, what you have to understand about this is that this drawing is written or drawn from the perspective after the walls are rebuilt. So these walls weren't there. It was just piles of rubber, rubble all around the city there. They didn't have that protection there at all. So Nehemiah goes out the valley gate and works his way around and inspects everything around the walls, ends up having to go over through the Kidron Valley because there's too much junk over there, and then back in through the valley gate again and inspects everything. Now, when he did this, he didn't tell the city officials that's what he was doing. He was doing his preparation work. He was doing his homework. He was getting ready for what was about to happen. The city officials did not know I had been out there or what I was doing. For I had not yet said anything to anyone about my plans. I had not yet spoken to the Jewish leaders, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or anyone else in the administration. But now I said to them, 
You know very well what trouble we are in. And here's what I want you to notice here. You know very well what trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and end this disgrace. Here's the thing. Nehemiah made this a we problem, not a you problem. And that's a big deal. Because the king of Persia's cupbearer, this trusted advisor to the king, shows up from Susa, 800 miles away, with an entourage of people and timbers and letters and guards and all this cool garb, all this cool stuff. And you would think he would show up and say, I am here to fix your problem. You have a problem. And trust me to lead you to fix your problem. That's not what he does. If anyone could have shown up and said, I'm going to help you guys because you guys, you don't understand what you're doing here. Clearly you need some better leadership. It's not what he does. He enters into their problem. He has already determined he's going to live with them. He's going to be one of them. This is the guy that lived in luxury in the palace in Susa. And he has now relocated to a city of rubble, a city with no defenses, a city with people who are divided. And he is living with them. And he's, he's gone around and inspected all of this damage himself. He didn't send out people to do that. He himself went and looked at the problem and he comes to the officials and he says, we have a problem. Let us fix it together. So many times we identify a problem that other people have and it impacts us and it moves us and we say, you have a problem. And what I want to challenge you with is maybe, just maybe, God is calling you to enter into that problem with others. That might mean living with them. That might mean spending time with them. That might mean doing research with them. That might mean getting into some muck and some mess that you'd rather not get into because it's way more comfortable where you're at right now. But this is a we problem, not a you problem. Nehemiah stepped into this with the people. And then I told them about my awesome plan and how clever and smart I was to get this far. That's not what he says. Then I told them about how the gracious hand of God had been on me and about my conversation with the king. They replied at once, yes, let's rebuild the wall. So they began this good work. Nehemiah did not have to give God credit here. He could have said, I was so persuasive. I was so awesome. I was so trustworthy. I'm such a great leader that I bring you all these resources. No one would have known. They're 800 miles away. And yet God gets the credit. Everything we have and everything we do is thanks to God. Verse 19. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, and uh, Geshem the Arab heard of our plan, they scoffed contemptuously. What are you doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Now that's a great way to throw somebody off their plan. Say, you know what? I think you're rebelling against the king. I'm just going to go talk to him and let him know that you're doing something you shouldn't do. And that could cause real problems for Nehemiah. Now, if you're in Nehemiah's shoes... And someone accuses you of this. And you've got these letters in your back pocket. What are you doing? Na, 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 na. Right? Read them and weep, boys. I am the king's cupbearer. He gave me permission. He gave me all these letters. He gave me all these guards. What do you got? And yet that is exactly the opposite of what Nehemiah does here. I replied, the God of heaven 
will help us succeed. This would have been the perfect time to name drop Artaxerxes. Do you know who I am? Do you know who I know? Do you know the kind of power I bring behind me? No, none of that. The God of heaven will help us succeed. We are his servants. We, his servants, will start rebuilding this wall, but you have no share, legal right, or historic claim in Jerusalem. When Nehemiah has every opportunity to take credit for himself, he always gives the credit back to God. Three takeaways for you today as we close. The first one is, don't just bring God a problem. Be willing to be a part of the solution. And along with that, recognize that sometimes you may seek to be part of the solution and God will say no. I've talked to some of you in that situation as well, especially when we're dealing with a loved one who you've tried and tried and tried and pushed and pushed. And it may be that it's time God is saying, you know what, you actually need to back off a little bit because you're getting too involved. You're getting too pushy. You're trying to be the solution and not allow me to do my work. So there's two sides of this. But don't just sit on the sidelines if God wants you to be a part of the solution. Number two, treat prayer as a constant conversation with God. Pray all the time. Pray before a big meeting. Pray before that dreaded moment. Pray before you get out on the road. Pray before you come to church. Just have an open conversation, dialogue with God throughout the day, just like Nehemiah did. And three, recognize that everything we have and everything we do is thanks to God. He deserves the ultimate credit. That's not to say that you don't do work. That's not to say that you're not a part of it. That there's not an element of deserving and earning and owning and all of that involved, that is there too. But you wouldn't have any of it if it weren't for God. And notice that Nehemiah didn't just give God the credit when he was with his friends. He didn't just give God the credit when he was with religious people, the priests and the noble people of Jerusalem. He gave God the credit with his enemies. When they came to him, he said, no, no, this is God. That's an incredible lesson for us. Because it's easy for us when we come to church to say, it's all because of God, to God be the glory. It's a lot harder at the gym. Now, I don't know what that looks like at the gym. Like, how did you get those biceps? Well, God gave them to me. You know, I guess you could do that. But at work, at school, as you go throughout your life with your friends, with your acquaintances, with your coworkers, how often do you have opportunities to give God the glory and the credit? And let those slip by. Give God the credit in those moments. And here's what could happen. Someone asks you about something. Maybe it's like, Paul, uh, how do you get this done you know, with what's going on in your life? Or, or how are you coping with this situation? Or whatever it is. And you have an opportunity to give God credit for some good work that you do or, or some capabilities or whatever it is. And you say, none of this would even be possible if it weren't for the way Jesus changed my life. Because I would be a wreck if it weren't for him. I would be an anxious, nervous wreck all the time. But boy, Jesus has just radically transformed my life. And now you have an opportunity to share the gospel with someone, to share the good news about Jesus, all because you gave God the credit. Nehemiah could have just let it slip on by, but he made sure he always gave God the credit for everything. Let's pray. God, you deserve the praise and the glory for everything we do. Nothing that we do is without your investment and involvement. So thank you. Thank you for everything you do for us, Lord. And now I pray that you would help us as your people 
to be reminded throughout our week to always, always give you the credit and the praise and the glory, Lord. Help us to be a part of the solution to the problems that we see. Help us to have a relationship with you where we're constantly in prayer and dialoguing with you. And then when good things happen and we see success of any kind, we can point people back to you, Lord. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Hey, don't hang up the phone, though. Keep that conversation going. We'll see you next week.